Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio, our weekly show on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, science correspondent here at The Economist. And coming up... How advances in synthetic biology mean man really can play God. We're able to now write DNA really, really cheaply, and so the tools for designing biology have radically changed. And the rise of the algorithmic police officer. Potentially, it could be the intelligence tool of the century. But first, it was only 10 years ago that Microsoft was seen by some as an evil empire, itching for world domination. Five years ago, having dozed through the rise of social media and smartphones, it was mocked as a sleepy has-been. But today, it's all a bit different. To date, Microsoft is having a fantastic year as it's just posted its most profitable quarter on record under the leadership of Satya Nadella and reclaimed its crown as the world's most valuable listed firm. Could other companies learn from Microsoft's example? Ludwig Ziegler is The Economist's US technology editor. Hello, Ludwig. Hi there. Ludwig, can you first tell us a bit about the history of Microsoft before the turnaround? So Microsoft, of course, well, used to be all about Windows, the operating system. And uh, remember, 95% of all personal computers were run by Windows. So it really focused on protecting that franchise. That was the monopoly that made all the money. And it did everything to kind of make sure that no competitor could endanger that franchise and all that. But by focusing too much on Windows, it missed the important tech trends in recent years, like mobile computing and uh, smartphones and uh, social media. So what's Mr. Nadella actually done to turn it all around? Satya Nadella, he became CEO in uh, 2014. And one of the first things he did when taking the helm was to downgrade Windows. So he basically started out saying it's no longer really the be-all and end-all of Microsoft and uh, made a big bet on something else, which was cloud computing. And he bet on cloud computing at a time when companies started to get comfortable with kind of renting computing power from computing clouds generated in big data centers. And so he rode that wave of cloud computing, and that has been proven to be very profitable and beneficial to Microsoft. And is it just the technology side of things he's changed, or is there more to it than that? No, definitely not. So he he changed the technology, he, he moved Microsoft to cloud computing, but he also changed Microsoft's culture. So when defending Windows almost at all costs, Microsoft also had a certain, we don't take prisoners culture. It didn't leave a lot of money on on the table for partners even, and certainly for competitors. And so Nadella has changed that too by saying Microsoft doesn't always have to win. And one example for that is that his predecessor, uh, Steve Ballmer, called Linux and other open source programs a cancer. 
and Nadella changed that. And today on Azure, more Linux is used than Windows. So he says, yes, we're an important company. We need to make money, but we don't have to win all the time. We don't have to be extractive. In the end, what's important that that there's more value, more surplus created outside of Microsoft than within the, the corporate world. So where's this philosophy actually come from? Is it Mr. Nadella's history in some sense, or is it just the way that Silicon Valley's moving to a more sort of open and not as extractive model? I think that is specific to, to Microsoft and the history of Microsoft. I mean, they, they just went too far the other side, and they've learned because they'd really got into antitrust problems because of that. You, you remember it kind of they bundled Windows with its browsers, and, and that basically killed Netscape, an early internet pioneer. And so, so they learned through that experience that it's important as a big platform, as a provider of an operating system, that you're not too extractive, that you make sure that you don't take more than you give. Now, recently, there's been a lot of talk around regulating the big tech firms, uh, clipping their wings and so on. Has any of that helped Microsoft in this environment? Yeah, because the way Nadella has kind of reshaped the the way people think about Microsoft makes it kind of an exception in, in this age of tech lash. Because now Microsoft is actually perceived as the nice tech giant, whereas Facebook or Google or even Apple, to some extent, are perceived as much more aggressive and um, companies that need to be reined in rather than kind of supported. So Ludwig, in conclusion, is everything now perfect at Microsoft? No, of course not. I mean, Microsoft is not perfect. And one shouldn't forget that it got where it is today by being a a pretty aggressive monopolist in previous years. And as it shows itself, things can change quite quickly. So it's going to be interesting to see if Microsoft remains kind of the most successful tech companies, if its cloud computing business becomes even bigger, how it will behave and whether kind of it falls back into the old trap of defending a dominant position. Ludwig, thank you. Thank you. And you can read more about Microsoft in this week's edition of The Economist. And why not try out a subscription? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. For the past 4 billion years or so, the only way for life on Earth to produce a sequence of DNA was by copying a pre-existing sequence of DNA. From that raw material, though, has arisen the glories of natural selection. Gene has created gene. But this is no longer true. With the technology of synthetic biology, humans can now write genes from scratch, and they can be edited repeatedly, a bit like text in a word processor. One biotech company using this technology is Ginkgo Bioworks, which specialises in using genetic engineering to produce bacteria with industrial applications. One of its co-founders, Reshma Shetty, recently spoke with Oliver Morton, The Economist's briefings editor. To start off with, what to you is synthetic biology? Synthetic biology is really about, think about biology as a technology platform, right? If you look around the world, um, you can see all the amazing things that nature is capable of. And so synthetic biology is really about harnessing that capability. How do we design biology? How do we engineer it? And so what was the first bit of 
biology that you yourself synthesized? What was the first thing that you built on nature's platform? One of the coolest uh, synthetic biology projects that I was involved with early on was engineering E. coli to smell like wintergreen and bananas. Uh, this was a fun summer project that we did with a group of MIT undergraduates as a part of what's called the International Genetically Engineered Machines Competition. This is an international undergrad competition where teams try to design and build a biological system. And we participated in iGEM in 2006 as mentors to a team of MIT undergraduates and, and wanted to do a fun project that really showed people both the whimsical side of biology as, as well as showed what could be done in the course of a single summer. And so engineering E. coli, which normally smells um, a bit like poo. Um, which to is smell not surprising since that's kind of where it lives. <laughs> yep, exactly. But thought we, we would do it, the folks in the lab a favor and instead um, design it to smell like wintergreen or bananas. Not wintergreen and bananas at the same time. No, no. The idea was um, for it to smell like wintergreen while it was growing and then um, start transitioning to smell like bananas once it had hit fully grown state. What are the differences between that sort of like early work, though, you know, 13 years ago, and the sort of things you're now capable of in the biological foundries at um, Ginkgo Bioworks? So one of the cool projects that we're working on today uh, at Ginkgo is to engineer microbes to fix nitrogen. So it turns out that when we grow crops, we have to use a lot of nitrogen fertilizer, right, to help them grow. But it turns out that microbes are able to do that as well, pull nitrogen from the air and, and fix it into a form that plants can use. And so we're trying to engineer some microbes to be able to fix nitrogen to crops to reduce fertilizer usage. And, and that's, you know, that's an idea that I'm sure other people have had before. What is it about where you are technologically now at Ginkgo that allows you to think that you're going to be able to do it in a way no one's done it before? Before. Yeah, this is some, you know, engineering microbes to fix nitrogen is, is something that a lot of different academic and um, industrial groups have worked on. But I think what's different today is that the tools have come really a long, long way. We're now able to, you know, read the DNA of what's out in the living world um, pretty cheaply, right? Um, we're able to now write DNA really, really cheaply. And so the tools for designing biology have radically changed. And so I think the time is ripe to take a look at some of these really big challenges that we've known about and, and worked on for a while now, but using the, the tools that we have today. Another thing I know you're working at at Ginkgo is using plant proteins to replace meat proteins. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. We recently launched a new company called Motif Ingredients that's specifically trying to go after um, what are called animal proteins. So a lot of folks are probably familiar with the Impossible Burger. It's now being rolled out to, to Burger Kings um, nationwide, um, where uh, this is basically um, sort of what most people would think of as a, a veggie burger, except it actually tastes like meat. And the reason it tastes like meat is because it has a protein in there called heme, which is what makes a burger taste like a burger. It's what makes it look like a burger. It sort of causes a burger to look like it's bleeding, right? Um, and it turns out it's all attributable to this one protein called heme, and that's, that's what makes the Impossible Burger so special. And the way Impossible makes this heme protein is that they've designed a yeast to produce it, and they can grow it up in big vats um, and purify it and, and include it in their burger formulation. And so we started Motif Ingredients to be able to do that, but across a wide range uh, of different uh, animal foods. So we'd love to be able to m make veggie milk that tastes like milk, uh, veggie eggs that taste like eggs, and you know, veggie burgers that taste like real burgers. <laughs> Do you know if consumers are, are on for that? Um, I mean, in, uh, in Europe and in some, in some parts of the States, people get quite worked up about the idea of having genetically modified organisms making their food. So a lot of folks worry about consumers being uncomfortable 
with the idea of having genetically engineered ingredients in their foods. But, you know, I think what the Impossible Burger has really shown is that if you give folks a product that tastes good and that has an interesting story behind it, right, one where they're really trying to change the environmental footprint of meat eating in this country, then consumers are interested, right? And that's why um, Impossible has been able to have the success it's had to date and, you know, why Burger King is looking to roll um, out the Impossible Burger, you know, across the nation is because consumers are putting their dollars where their mouth is and, uh, and choosing to consume these products. So you've told me so far about things that are sort of like already done, but how synthetic biology might help them be done better or cheaper. So make better burgers or um, cheaper fertilizer. What can synthetic biology do that no other technology can do? Yeah, great question. You know, we have a, a partnership with a company called Synlogic who are really interested in living medicines, right? And and basically, there are a whole set of folks out there who are born um, with what's called inborn errors in metabolism. These are metabolic diseases that mean that they can't eat certain foods because their body just can't process them, right? And so what if we could engineer living microbes that you could take to be able to cure these types of diseases, right? This is These are things that are not readily treatable using conventional therapeutics, but where if you had a living medicine, a, a designed microbe that could specifically treat these types of metabolic um, metabolic disease, then it could make a huge impact on the quality of life of, of these folks. What worries you about the technology that you work on? Any powerful technology like synthetic biology can be used for good, right? Or it can be used for not good purposes, right? And so from my perspective as a practitioner in the field, um, you know, I have a responsibility to ensure that synthetic biology technologies are, are used for overwhelmingly positive things. And I believe in this potential of this technology, and I want it to do good in the world. And so I think from my perspective, it's how do we build the community of folks, not just the scientists and engineers, but, you know, the policymakers, the NGOs, um, the, the whole community of folks who are interested in this technology and, and want to ensure that it's as used as productively as possible for humanity. That was Reshma Shetty speaking to Oliver Morton. And finally, the rise of the algorithmic police officer. Within England and Wales, many police forces are experimenting with technology that, if successful, could soon render the traditional copper's nose and eyes redundant. However, these experiments are raising questions as to the invasiveness and legal basis for the technologies being tested. I'm joined by Tom Rowley, Britain correspondent at The Economist. Hello, Tom. Hello. Tom, tell us what's actually been on trial. All kinds of things. Police forces are experimenting with all different approaches to this. In London and South Wales, police are trying facial recognition technology to spot people in crowds and to look out for suspects. Up in Durham, they're using algorithms to predict whether or not a suspect is likely to reoffend, and therefore whether or not they should be allowed out early on bail or kept in a police cell awaiting a trial. Technology is always a good thing if it comes to catching more people causing crimes and everything. But, of course, we're talking huge invasions of privacy, potentially. Who's concerned about this? How legal is any of this? There's a whole bunch of people who are looking at it. We specialise in these want shops in Britain and more and more are setting up at the moment to look at it. The government has its own Centre for Data Ethics and Integrity, which is currently looking into police use of algorithms. We also have quite critical report recently by the Law Society, which represents solicitors in Britain, and also by some academics who've evaluated facial recognition technology. They reckon at the moment 
it may very well not be lawful. There's a big judicial review going on in South Wales of this facial recognition technology, which is expected to come back and report later this year. And that could well be crucial for determining the future of this technology. Has any of these um, technologies or trials, have they improved rates of catching criminals or making people feel safer? It's a little bit too early to say, but what certainly police are hopeful of is that it will speed up their job, it will free up cops. There have been uh, huge cuts to police numbers in the last 10 years as governments has cut back on, on spending. And the hope is that this will allow cops to reprioritise and not to be focused on doing more menial aspects of the job. Yeah, like looking for suspects in crowds or something like that, which AI could help with, um, facial recognition can help with. The issue is, of course, who keeps the data and for how long? I mean, these are things to be worked out, uh, aren't they? Exactly that. There are 12.5 million images on the police national database, including an unknown number of people who haven't been charged with any offence and who haven't consented necessarily to have their picture stored in this way. In an era of GDPR regulations when a, a pizza joint needs to ask permission to send you a mailing list, it strikes some as quite remarkable that we have such sweeping powers according to the police. Now, it sounds probably like it's okay for a while to have trials, but is there a mechanism for working out whether these trials have worked and then deciding at the sort of national level whether they carry on or not? Because you can't have all these police agencies just doing their own thing, right? At the moment, academics have been evaluating the trials on a case-by-case basis. One was recently published on the trial of facial recognition in the Met Police, which wasn't too complimentary. In fact, it said that only 8 out of the 42 matches that the computer threw up were correct. So obviously, That's remarkable. <laughs> yes. Um, so obviously, forces will, will want to uh, improve their technology before there's any wider rollout. But the the government's Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation is going to produce a report later this year, which probably will have for the first time national guidelines on how police can harness this technology. And just so that we're not completely negative about technology and policing, because I'm sure that it can be made to make policing better. You know, what are the police forces saying, apart from doing the menial things which we mentioned already, but... What kinds of things could it mean for a safer society, catching more criminals, making people feel better? Potentially, it could be the the intelligence tool of the century. Cops are very excited about the uh, the prospect for it. They don't know quite where it's going to go in the future. But one force, for example, is even thinking about uh, having smart lampposts installed all over a city with uh, microphones hidden inside them to monitor reaction during crowds and perhaps help with crowd control policing, that sort of thing. So I think chief constables' sort of eyes light up when they start thinking about the potential uh, that this technology could give them. And obviously, they're always looking at ways to outsmart criminals. I mean, the idea of a a lamppost that listens to you terrifies me, but maybe it will be better for society at large. Tom, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this week's Babbage. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It actually does make a difference. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... 
partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.